morning. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 35, 1 through 29. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alam Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God has spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Mephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, 
Dan, and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last. And he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, bless your word. Bless this story. Bless the lives that we are to look at and into our lives. May the truths and the reality of you, God, working in this transition of Jacob's life, may you work in ours too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're wrapping up the life of Jacob today, and it's been um, quite, a, quite a journey, I would say. I feel like I've kind of gone along with him. Do you? We've gone ups and downs and left and right and all over the place with Jacob as he's traveled from home away and then back. And I've been really challenged by the ups and downs of this man's life and God's faithfulness to him. From his early days on, when he was called the heel grabber, remember when he was born? The deceiver, which was what that meant. The deceiver of his family and his brother. The stealer of the inheritance and blessing to the trials with his this scoundrel father-in-law, Laban, who he worked for for 20 years to be given a bride. Came away with two. More, actually, four. To his wrestling with God in the wilderness that we read about, to his reconciliation with Esau, and then the second deceiving of Esau, to his partial obedience and passivity when he entered the promised land and lingered for 10 years, not heading to Bethel, which brought about that disastrous genocide we read about last week. Now today, 30 years is the time compressed into the 10 or so chapters we've looked at. 30 years after God appeared to Jacob in Bethel on that angel staircase, remember that? Jacob's ladder sometimes it's called. Jacob now fulfills 30 years later his vow by final, finally returning to the place where that happened, returning to Bethel. But it's on this return in his life that a really clear transition from one generation to the next is taking place. And so a preparation has to be made. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to compare Jacob's family and his transitional season in this time of his life to our own seasons of transition in life as God's people and the season that the church in general is going through, a transition time in our world. And be reminded that the faithfulness of God in our own transitions give us a time, uh, to, a call to, to, to self-examine in seasons of transition and to renew our commitment and worship to God. So let's begin by looking at this story. And our first of four truths we're going to hit this morning. Here's the first one. Grab your outline. Hopefully you got it open in your Bible too. Here's the truth. Big transitions in life, as we're seeing in Jacob's life, big transitions make space, and sometimes even big space in our life, for spiritual renewal 
through self-examination. Now today, as I said, I want to draw our attention to this idea of, of, of transitions. Big transitions in life. And, and how they make a big space for taking stock, spiritual renewal, through looking at our life and our heart and our loves and our interests. And our story today serves primarily in the overall book of Genesis as a transition story. One generation is passing away. We have three deaths in our story today. Three deaths, have you heard that in the reading? Deborah, who was uh, Jacob's mom, Rebecca, he, uh, she was her nurse, Rebecca's nurse. She'd been with them for some time, we, we seem to think. And then the love of Jacob's life, Rachel. Rachel dies as she gives birth to their final son, her second son, Benjamin. And then the third was, did you catch it at the end? The patriarch Isaac, Jacob's father, dies all in this section. We've got three deaths. We also have another big move. Get up, Jacob. Go to Bethel. And live there. So the family's on the move again. Then we've also got the birth of, of the final son, the birth of a baby. Talk about life transitions. That's a lot. Two appearances by God, one birth and three deaths and a big move. That's enough for one lifetime, let alone this, this span in Jacob's and the family's life. And Jacob feels this. This season of transition, this season of change. So he says to his family, look at verse 2. Jacob said to his household, that's all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and, and change your garments. Okay, he's saying to his family, we need to take stock. We need a moment to have some thorough self-examination and repent before the Lord as we, we recommit our lives to him. We're in this big season of change, transition. What are big transitions in your life? We have them from time to time. Big changes, big, big benchmarks in our life that transition us from one thing to something else. We have them. Most of our life's lived in the mundane, isn't it? <laughs> the day-to-day -day routine. In fact, most of our sanctification, most of it, most of our change process or our growth, our faithfulness and obedience is challenged in the small day-to-day -day decisions, relationships, responses to conflict, irritations and choices and small successes and failures. But from time to time, some of you are feeling like, no, it's all the time for me, big things. <laughs> like Jacob's family... We, we do have big life transitions. And I think what we see going on here with Jacob and his family, which means we have the same opportunity as well, in those transitions, we're given an amazing opportunity to stop and pause. Well, what are some of those big transitions in life that we go through? Starting a new job, maybe. Quitting a job. Maybe reaching a milestone age of a new decade. Loss of a loved one is a huge transition. Maybe it's visiting a new church for the first time or going back to church or finding you have a serious illness, having another child or having your first child, big transitions, getting engaged or married, moving to a new neighborhood, 
Retirement. Retiring is a huge transition and opportunity. Maybe it's finding out something traumatic or some family secret you never knew that finally came to the surface. These can all be all kinds of big transitions in our life. So let's ask why. Why do transitions, as we see here with Jacob and his family, why do they give us an amazing opportunity for spiritual renewal through self-examination? Here's why, I think. Because like Jacob, seeing this former generation pass away, aging himself, losing his wife, being asked by God to, to obey again, transitions give us a reality check, a litmus test on where our spiritual maturity is actually at, not where we think it's at or where we'd like to think it's at, but where it's actually at. In other words, you could say another way is transitions are uh, apocalyptic in the actual sense of the word, which means apocalypse means to reveal something, uncover something, to show what's actually inside, and transitions do that because they bring change, and change is hard for a lot of us. And change reveals what's actually going on inside us or the level of our maturity of faith. So we had, it's a great opportunity. Transitions require great patience and, and durability and resilience and trust in God because we don't know the outcome, but he does. He does know the other side of that transition. He does, absolutely, and that is why Jacob directs the family to God in this transition. He directs them, let's look at ourselves in light of who God is. Another reason, transitions require flexibility. They can require new skills or tap into old skills, and they often bring a host of new decisions to be made. Can you see how they provide great opportunity for spiritual renewal and examination of our life? Like, you move. Where do I go to the grocery store in this new town? <laughs> what do I do with my free time now that I'm retired? How do I get this baby to go to sleep? How do I go on tomorrow now that he's gone? I also want to apply not just personally this idea of transitions for us today, but I want us to also apply it corporately to the transition the evangelical church is facing right now in the world and inside the walls of many churches. I see our current moment in history as a great opportunity for the church. You might be thinking, really? It doesn't seem like that. I actually believe that. Well, what is that moment? I read an article this week in First Things. It's a journal. It was entitled, The Three Worlds of evangelicalism. It was by Aaron Wren. I put a few on the counter out there if you want to grab one, if you like to read stuff. But uh, we're just pulling a, a short section of it. But in that article, he talks about the culture war that's taking place within the evangelical church, but also the transition period that the church really in the West, in America, or, is, is living through right now. You could say a, a historical transition moment that the church is living through right now. He's not the only theologian or, 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 or scholar to make this case, but he does it well. And he says in our lifetime now, we've lived through a really unique period, different than any other people in American history have lived through. If you're alive today and older than 30, 35, you've lived through this. He says we've lived through three transition or eras in the church. And here's how he describes them. This is directly from the article. Let's look at these three. 
He describes the world. We we once lived as Christians in, you could call it a positive world. He kind of dates before 1994, around there. And, you know, those are impressions or loosely, but here's how he described it. Society at large retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. To be known as a good church-going man or woman remained at that time part of being an upstanding citizen. Publicly being a Christian is a status enhancer during this time. Christian moral norms are the basic moral norms of society, and violating them can bring negative consequences. It's a reason you could have something at that time called the moral majority, and it would make sense to people in pre-1994 world. Well, he talks, describes the next world, the two of the three. The second one is a neutral world. So at once Christianity was viewed positively. There was some social capital even that went with it. Oh, you're a Christian. Well, he describes it around 1994 into 2014. It kind of was a little more neutral. Society takes a neutral stance towards Christianity. Christianity no longer has privileged status, but it's not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian has neither a positive nor a negative impact on one's social status. And Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Christianity moral norms retain some residual effect. Well, around 2014, he describes this time, and you could say it was kind of codified at the Obergefell decision, which was the the same-sex marriage Supreme Court decision, which was a huge slap in the face to a Christian worldview and moral norms. He describes the negative world this way. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative now, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen actually as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. That's all in like the last 30 years. That's a blip in history. And maybe that resonates with you. And really, the closer you live to a city, the more it resonates with people and Christians. And you can't make those dates hard and fast, but I think he's right, at least at some level. We have seen a big change in the world. And we now live in what you might call a negative world. Not that the world is somehow worse, although it may be, but that the view of of the world towards the Christian faith and towards the exclusive truth claims of Jesus has changed quite a bit. And we are living as a church in a transition time. We've lived through an absolutely radical historical moment, whether we realize it or not, one that historians will talk about for generations. When the surrounding culture is feeling a bit more negative or hostile towards Christianity. Do you see that? Do you realize that? We might not feel it as strongly in Canby, and yet Canby's not immune as well to the, the, the natural trends in the world. Might be a little slower to get there or to see it pop up. Add to that the unprecedented eternal culture wars in many evangelical churches over issues of sexuality or race or immigration or politics or COVID or or gender or poverty, we are living, whether you know it or not, in the church world in an absolutely radical transition time. So what do we do? What do you do if you're personally facing one of those transitions we talked about? Or what do we do corporately as a church in this transition time? Well, the first thing we do is this. We do what Jacob did. We put away idols, 
We purify ourselves and we put on new clothes. And again, I don't see this as a time to fret or to lose hope, even using that word negative world we live in. I hope we're going to see it as an opportunity today. What do we do? We seize the transition moment, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's as a church, which is likely, as we said, revealing, apocalypse uncovering, revealing all kinds of things about ourselves in these personal transitions or corporately as a church. Look at verse 4 with me again. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So Jacob's family, or the people that he had with him, had somehow taken on uh, false idols or gods of other cultures. More than likely, when they plundered Shechem, remember last week, and slaughtered the fathers and husbands and took the women and children, they most likely also took their foreign gods with them. At the very least, they took the jewelry, it sounds like, that had foreign gods on earrings. And so the people used this transition time to purge from their life, from their corporate life, the idols, and, and, and bury them, which is symbolic. Just get rid of them, bury them. But idolatry is not just the worship of statues, or in verse 4, foreign gods on jewelry. Idolatry can also be something in your life that is a good thing, a good thing that becomes, that you turn into a God thing, a good thing that you make an ultimate thing in your heart. So it could be your job, it could be your health, it could be your looks, it could be your reputation, it can be your children, it can be your nation, it can be your church, it can be your spouse, all of these things which are good things in and of themselves can become idols, things that transition time of life might point out to us, to you. How do you know when something's become an idol? What do you think? How do you know when something's become an idol to you? So I think it's something to train ourselves in seeing and looking for. Well, you might ask yourself the question, what's something in my life that if I were to lose that thing, life would not feel worth living? If you've got an answer to that, that might be an idol in your life. Or you have it, and to acquire or keep it, you're willing to fight and quarrel to get it. As James says in chapter 4, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not that your passions... An over-desire for something, that's a definition of an idol. Your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and not, cannot contain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That passion word is the language of idolatry. When you have to have something so deeply that life doesn't feel worth living, if you lose it and if you've got it, you'll do anything to hold on to it. Sometimes for me, an idol is just the comfort I need or the little peace and quiet I need. Get home from a long day at work, walk through the door. Oh, I just want to sit down. just want to relax a little bit, put my feet up. But maybe I'm asked to do something or my kids want to interact. And, 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 and what do I do? Get frustrated. Oh, I just need a moment. Just give me a, ah. That's an idol. That's an idol. 
something I need that I'm willing to hurt somebody else or at least, at least get a little angry at them unjustly, something I want to hold on to that I'm willing to sin or hurt somebody else to hold on to and get. That's an idol. James points it out in that language of passions. So church, in our transition season, let's be on the lookout for things we've made into idols in our corporate life here, in our personal life. And when we find them, we purify ourselves. We, we repent. God is leading Jacob to repentance. That was, it was put away the idols. It was repent then or, or purify yourself was the second one. God is leading Jacob, as I said, to repentance, and we see in his, that in his obedience. He sets up these altars and, and pours not only oil on them, but he adds wine this time, I think. Maybe a fuller, richer depth of faith for Jacob. He worships God. And in that sense, that is purification. It's, it's worshiping God through repentance and obedience, acknowledging the idol, saying it to God, committing to turn away from it, back towards God. That's this purification. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, purify us from all unrighteousness. Sit in that. If we confess, if we speak it to him, he will purify us, cleanse you, wash you, Whiter than snow, I said in our prayer. East from the west, I said in our prayer today. He will not hold it against you. Purify, forgive him. What he reveals to us in the, the, the pressure cooker of transitions, or you might call transitions a fiery furnace, if we repent of it, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's an ongoing thing in the life of a Christian, though. That's just not just the doorway into Christianity. It is that. It is the ongoing posture of the Christian life. Repentance and faith. Repentance again and, and faith that I truly am cleansed and forgiven. And then thirdly, we said we put on new clothes. What does that mean? Just, just get some clean underwear and socks on for the journey? We put on the clothes of Christ's righteousness or another identity or another, another purpose in life. The people changed their clothes. Much like Joseph was made to change when he was taken into, the, into Potiphar's house and into Pharaoh's company. Get some different clothes on that guy. Symbolic of our greater clothing, Paul picks up in Ephesians, Ephesians 4. You'll look at all three of these verses in your growth groups today or this week. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's those desires again. And be renewed. There's purification. Renewal in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self. It's like a new clothing, like a new garment, new outfit, new pair of boots. Created after the likeness of God, though, in true righteousness and holiness. It's a new life. It's the new creature. It's the new image. It's the new purpose. It's the new heart. It's all of that. But it is a daily putting on. Like you get up every day and pull your socks on and tight cinch your belt and put on a hat maybe or a coat. It's daily. I'm not sure we do this enough. 
I'm not sure we pause enough and, and look at life. Now, I'm ta- not talking about being obsessive, but I'm talking about just a general looking at our life and, and going through this process that Jacob calls his family to. Put away your idols. Purify yourself. Put on new clothes. I mean, that really is, he's saying there, he's describing Christian discipleship. He's describing the ongoing growth that we should have as believers. He calls his family to this in this transition. So do you take advantage of transitions for spiritual renewal through self-examination? As I said, I'm not sure we're self-aware enough, or maybe we are, and we just don't feel equipped to do that. It's why we are starting to talk more here at Bethany Church about equipping ourselves, training ourselves. In fact, that's the Bible's language. Pastors and teachers and elders equip the saints for the work of ministry. So we talk so much about using the gospel on ourselves here at Bethany Church. We, we, we don't think naturally this way. We have to be trained in it and grow in it. That's how we respond. We want to respond to our transition moments, repentance and faith, the daily renewal. So what's another way we can live in the midst of our transitions? If that first one is self-examination, put away idols, purify self, put on new clothes, here's a second one for us. We look for the assurance that God gave to Jacob. God renews his commitment to give assurance for his people in the midst of a transition, in the midst of a trial, in the midst of this hard change in life, one generation passing away, God renews his commitment to give assurance to his people. Twice, God appears again to Jacob in this passage. First, when he says in verse one, get up, Jacob, get, get, get home, You vowed to me you would, so get up and go back to Bethel. And then in verse 9, God appears to Jacob and gives him such a wonderful assurance of who Jacob is. Remember, this story is coming on the heels of his sons going out and committing genocide. And, And him being passive in the face of his daughter's assault. If there was any a time when God would be really just, and we'd actually understand it when he would turn his back on this one and walk away, it'd be right now in the story. It'd be right now in your life if it was on the heels of one of your darkest moments. You would, yeah, okay. Yeah, you walked, you turned your back. Okay, I get it. But no, God appears to Jacob and he gives him this wonderful assurance and and he tells him who God is and what his plan is for his life. He reminds Jacob of his grace his covenant with him, and his purposes for Jacob, which are so much larger than just Jacob. I think that's the purpose of the whole story. So much bigger than Jacob and you. And when you, and when you age as Jacob is here, he sees the next generation pass on, isn't it nice to be reminded that God's purposes will go on after you? And maybe even through something you did, a legacy left behind, a family left behind, and that your efforts will not have been in vain. But think of the other side of that. Ending up at the end of your life on your deathbed saying, oh, I wish I had poured in more to this or made more effort. I wish I would have maybe served more or thought about being more 
outwardly missional with my faith. Wish I would have spoken to her about Jesus just a little more. I wish I would have prayed more for so-and-so and spent more time with you, Lord. That can be the other end of the spectrum. So let's look to God's assurances now for motivation. Now, wherever you are in life, young or feeling like you are towards the latter days, now let's look to him. God reminds Jacob, you're a new man, Jacob. You're a new person. Your name is now Israel. Not only that, but I am God Almighty. The first time I think El Shaddai appears in the Bible. I am God Almighty, Jacob. I'm God Almighty, Bethany Church. And what does that mean? It means God is powerful, sovereign, almighty, working for his people. It means he's a God that can actually do something about what he says. He can put action behind his words. He can put certainty behind his words. God Almighty, El Shaddai. And Jacob, remember, not only my power, my covenant, my promises with you, the promises I made with Abraham and with Isaac, and now you. I'll bring a nation from your 12 sons and kings will come from you and you'll have this land that I promised Abraham. Remember the promises. Remember who I am. Remember what I will do. El Shaddai, it means I can actually do it too. Especially when you take advantage of transition times. It's why I am excited and think actually that I can say our best days are still ahead of us as a church. I think it's a perfect time, too, for our church to be going through this vine project we're doing. We're looking at the biblical convictions of discipleship, committing to them as a small team, and then we're going to look at Bethany Church and say, are we making disciples? Are you being equipped to equip others? It's a haunting question that our team's been going through as we look at the Bible and look at what the New Testament calling is. Are you, could you answer that and say, yeah, I feel like I'm being equipped here. Maybe you could. I think it's a perfect time for us to do this. As we live now in this negative world, guess what? We can't respond to the world as if we're still living in, in positive land. We can't respond or live the same way in our disciple-making mission. Now, our message will never change, will it? I pray to God it will not. And if it does, you better hold me accountable. The, mission, the, the message will never change, but, but the way we have to think about the world, we can't live as if it was still 1989 and 2022. We can't assume anything, actually. You can't assume that any family member or any neighbor are people who are seeking, or that if we just put on the right event, people will come. We just can't assume those things anymore. Uh, Tim Keller, who you guys know I quote a lot and love, uh, he he had this great example of the world we live in now. Uh, look at this connect the dot picture. How many of you did those as kids? Yeah, some of you still do them, adults. Yeah, I know. Uh, I mean, it did calm your mind, right? It's like Sudoku, uh, just something kind of mindless. Well, we used to live in that positive world where you could take a picture like this and hold it in front of pretty much anybody, and they know how to connect the dots. You could talk about something like sin with somebody. You could talk about the idea of judgment, and there's a God that's going to hold us accountable, an afterlife, and a heaven, and a hell, and the exclusivity of Christianity. And you know what? It would maybe resonate a little bit. Like, people had those dots there, and 
you could bring something like the four spiritual laws, and you know what? It would just connect the dots for them. Like, oh, yeah. And it was so simple, right? Well, nowadays, take a step back from this picture. You have to assume that people don't even have the dots anymore. They don't even have the dots for you to connect anymore. Sin? What is it? Like, what? Really? Guilt? Wait, wait. I don't, I'm not the, the, the decider of my fate in the course of it. There's a God who's in control of all things? Judgment? Come on. Wait, wait. I'm, I, you're going to tell, there's going to be a God who tells me what is good for my life? Like, those dots aren't even there for people anymore. We have to be equipped. We have to take advantage of, of equipment opportunities in our church and groups and classes and to be intentional because it's changed. But that's exciting too. And, and, and to be equipped to help somebody and to live missional intentional by that, don't be scared of it. I don't want you to be like, I can never do that. What do I mean by that? I just mean being ready and equipped, being willing to help somebody just take even a small step towards Jesus. It doesn't mean every time you're going to share the entire gospel, but maybe just help them take a small step. Maybe it's through praying for them. Maybe it's through encouraging them with words or actions or giving them a great book or an article and, or just saying, can I pray for you right now? Or inviting someone to church. I, I'm just talking about helping people take small steps and us being equipped to do that. It might mean sharing the gospel. And we pray it does. But it also might mean just saying, can I pray for you? It sounds like you've been through a lot. I believe that we can be equipped in that and we can grow in that because El Shaddai is still making a great nation of people. He's still making disciples. He's still making kings and queens of heaven. That's us. And he's still preparing for us the land all because of King Jesus. So be assured today in your transitions, God is for you in Jesus Christ. He's going to make things happen in and through us. But it doesn't always feel like that, does it? It doesn't always feel like that, especially when you're going through the hard times. The transitions are big or shocking or terrifying or hurtful or painful. So we need to be reminded of this third truth today. Even in the midst of death and sin, what do we see happen in this family? He completes the family for the next phase. Even in the midst of death, and sin, which are really hard, big transitions in life. God is still working. He's still completing what he wants to do with his family. Pick it up with me in verse 16. Things are going good for Jacob. He's on the right track. Repentance and obedience are happening again. Things are looking really good. And yet we get to 16. They journeyed from Bethel when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor and when her labor was at his hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. As her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that's Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben... Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father, that's Jacob, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. 
So good things are happening for Jacob. He's on the right path. He's going home. He's repentant. He's calling his family to worship. And Rachel, the love of his life, dies. Right there in childbirth. Oh, the bitter irony for Rachel. Dying in childbirth when she said so many years ago to Jacob, give me children or I die. It's a bitter, bitter ironic end to her life. And Jacob's sorrow was deep. As he says on his deathbed, as for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. In the great transition of the loss of a loved one, a, a, the biggest trial and probably transition in Jacob's life to lose his beloved wife, God is still doing his mission, and he completes the family with the birth of Benjamin. The final son was born. Now Joseph had the 12 sons, and the 12 tribes of Israel would come from these sons, and the Messiah would come, the king from Judah, and the world would be redeemed through this family. So even in the midst of this greatest transition of death, the next generation goes on in faith for God's purposes, his purposes. Jacob must have been tempted to doubt, like we are when we lose a loved one, especially a spouse, to derail, to, to, to just throw in the towel, but he continues on in faith. Even as his son Reuben sleeps with his concubine. Why? It's hard to know, but maybe as Leah's son, which Reuben was, we know Leah was not favored and Rachel was, and maybe as Leah's son, now with Rachel dead, he's worried her servant might become, Rachel's servant might become Jacob's favorite, so maybe he seduced her hoping that his Father's affections would turn to his own mother, Leah. I don't know. Or maybe, as the oldest, he was claiming his father's concubine's possessions, which was the custom of the day, but it's a bit early, right? Jacob's still alive. <laughs> so what's he doing? Whatever the case, Reuben faces the consequences as he's passed over in his inheritance, as Jacob also says on his deathbed. Reuben, you're my firstborn. My might the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, but unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Kind of weird way to say it, but he's making a point, I guess, emphasizing. It's sad. There's an incredible bitterness that continues on in this family, right at the end of the story even through the actions of their father that was ongoing. Jacob favored one wife over the other. He favored sons over the other. And then the ongoing sin in his family. Between Rachel's sons and, and Leah's sons and Bilhah's sons and Zilpah's sons, there's just this ongoing conflict in this family. We even know it the way Moses dramatized it and the way he recorded the births. He didn't put them by order of age, which would have been the custom and tradition in writings, he put the birth by mother, not birth order. I think showing us that there was still a lot of separation in this family. And we'll see. You know, in a couple chapters, they're going to plan to murder their brother. <laughs> so they prove it in their actions. They try to murder Joseph. But God continues, and that's the point. He continues his work. As this phase of the salvation story begins to close and the family grows to become a nation through whom God will work as they head into Egypt and then are called out with Moses, the author of our book here, 
What does all this mean? Our final truth today. The completion of the blessing of God means his purposes go on. The completion of his working through Jacob and his sons. It means that sin and death in the community, they they might ruin the inheritance for Reuben, but they can't nullify God's blessing in the life of this family. Yeah, it derailed Reuben's life, and he was probably stung bitterly to hear that, those words from his father at the end. But man, did God keep working through this family? As we're going to see into Joseph's life. These sons, in other words, were only the first fruits of what was to come from this family. Christ the King. It also means God's grace and salvation isn't earned. It's not earned. It comes through faith alone. When you look at a family like this and you see it end even this way with death and adultery, it comes by grace alone, through faith alone, where God sovereignly chooses to lay it out and let it play out and pull people in and call them to himself. As Isaac passes away and one generation disappears, in spite of sin and death, God's blessings continue in our lives as they did in our forefathers. And the families continues. And so too for us, transitions in your life, even if they are bad ones, painful ones, are not beyond God's redemption and his use and his purposes. You might not see him this side of heaven, but you'll see him so clearly on the other side that you'll say, those were light and momentary afflictions, the Bible says. Compared to what you've prepared for me, he will redeem them and he can. So jump on them as opportunities when transitions come to make that big space for spiritual renewal and self-examination as you put away idols, purify yourself through repentance and put on new clothes. That's personally, but what about us as a church, corporately? We are in that transition period. We are living through it. I don't want to just be a placeholder as a pastor. I don't want to just be a placeholder that was here for a moment in the transition time. I I want us to keep going forward and not just sit back and go, well, things are negative now. Yes, they are, but we, we can't give up. We have to refocus and continue to renew as Jacob did in the story in obedience and, and worship. Will we pass on the faith to a new generation? Will we make disciples of the next generation? Those are really big questions for us as a church. Or will Bethany Church fade? Like many churches are fading as the baby boomer generation does pass on. Will we fade? I don't think so. Because I think we're going to continue to continue to look at the greatest transition that ever took place in the world. We are not going to move off of that. In fact, do you know the greatest transition? History's calendar is even based off it, isn't it? B.C. to A.D. The greatest transition the world ever felt was when Jesus Christ came and made salvation possible. That was the turn. That was the transition the world was waiting for. When the transition from the kingdom of darkness to light became possible, we live in that time. That's the time we live in. It's changing, yes. 
But we live in the time of the kingdom now. The transition that we were all waiting for. And the story turned on a transition from death to resurrection. Was there ever, I mean, there wasn't. Was there ever a greater transition in the world than when Jacob's son came to earth as God in flesh to transition a people to his kingdom? That's the time we live in. That's why there's hope. That's why we go forward as a church, regardless of what happens in the world or how bad it begins to look. We live post-resurrection. We live in the, the, the backside of the transition. The next one that comes is going to be the, the one forever, that transition. That's why I have hope for us, because we're going to keep living in that transition and live in that Savior as we navigate our own transitions in this new negative world, and it is, we have to be honest, and we will be part of God's purpose going forward. So here's our question to close the life of Jacob. Why does the story end this way? Death, multiple deaths. It's like this throw on in the end there. His son went and committed adultery with his wife, his other wife. And, and also you think about along the way, all those ups and downs. And why did they? I mean, Moses could have given us a little more polished view of Jacob. He could have. Why does he not? Here's why. Because the story is not ultimately about Jacob, but about God who is sovereign, who is gracious, and always about his purposes and promises. That's the whole Bible. It is to point to him as the great transition of history. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the life of Jacob. That in his warts and flaws, but also his great successes, that you're real with us, that you present to us the real life struggle of a man called to live for you. But many times we find in him failings that we find in ourself. But Jesus, we know that even in Jacob's life, you didn't drop him, walk away from him, but kept working through him. You will do that with us. And so Jesus, let us live at Bethany Church in the transition period of your death, of your resurrection, of your ascension and your ruling and reigning now. That whatever the world looks like, whatever the world is we live in, we will live knowing that we live post-resurrection. Yeah, it might be the negative world, but it's the world the kingdom is broken into. Give us hope to live in that. In Christ's name, amen.